Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Head of Strength and Conditioning at the St. Louis Blues, Eric Renahan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Eric to the podcast today. So he's the first person who I've had on the podcast who is directly working with one NHL team. So I had a couple of people who are working in um, private sector looking after uh, hockey players, ice hockey players. But this is the first person I've had on who's actually working directly in NHL. So absolutely um honoured to have him on um, to chat about the technology that he uses, in particular force plates, and how that informs what he's doing day to day. We also chat about how they use heart rate technology, obviously being an indoor sport, um, GPS becomes a bit of an issue, so how they rely a lot on uh, first beat and heart rate technology to also guide their training. So really interesting chat. Obviously, I know absolutely nothing about ice hockey, so it was great for me to get a bit of education and um, have a really good chat with Eric, which I know you'll enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Eccentric. So Eccentric are a Sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel training tools, the K-Box and the K-Pulley. And since its founding in 2011, Eccentric products have gone on to be used in Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NFL, NBA, a number of uh, other leagues around the world, including the EPL, where Leicester City, Chelsea and Arsenal are among their customers. So just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training with the K-Box and the K-Poly. So backed up by multiple academic research studies, it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity, but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the K-Pulley, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X, entric.com or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. 
So Imagier was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So Imagier works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website, which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Eric Renahan. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Head of Strength and Conditioning at the St. Louis Blues, Eric Renahan. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you having me on. Nah, it's a pleasure to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, and I will admit I know absolutely zero about hockey, um, but we'll get into that in a bit. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, um, just going to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, how you got to uh, St. Louis, and then uh, maybe a bit around education as well. That's always cool to know. And then we'll uh, we'll get into the hockey chat. Sure. So I am the head of strength and conditioning with the Blues. I um, Going into my third season, I uh, Previously, I was with the Vancouver Canucks for um, just about four, four seasons there, and I started off my time in the NHL with the San Jose Sharks um, as an assistant strength coach. So um, prior to that, I worked in collegiate sport. Uh, my focus wasn't in hockey. It was in uh, working with football, uh, men's and women's soccer, and with baseball. So that was done um, primarily in the Bay Area. And uh, prior to that, I worked at a private training facility called Sparta. Nice. What was what, what Sparta, Eric? Um, so that was Sparta Sparta Performance Science. Um, that was a private training facility, and I worked with those guys. Um, right, I, I had graduated from university. I did my undergraduate degree in kinesiology, and uh, worked at uh, San Jose State University. And then after that, I, I went on and worked in the private sector. And then moved back into the um, university setting uh, before I went into the NHL. Nice. So, what was the what's the journey been in? So, who did you say you worked for before St. Louis? I was with the Vancouver Canucks as an assistant strength coach, and prior to that, I was with the San Jose Sharks as an. Assistant. Okay, so there was a. So, how did that transition come around between firstly getting into the NHL in the first place? Was there anyone that kind of helped you out, and how did that transition happen between? Um, San Jose and uh, obviously the step in between and then St. Louis. Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, luckily I was given some opportunities after graduating because I was a former athlete. So I, I think there were some doors that opened for me um, through, through being a former athlete uh, into the, uh, into the professional career of being a strength and conditioning coach. And through that, um, through that experience, I had met a lot of the, a lot of the strength and conditioning coaches and, uh, therapist in the Bay Area, working with the, the, a variety of professional sports teams that that we had there. One of those guys was Mike Potenza, and uh, over time, getting to know Mike a bit and just um, networking with him, and um, always kind of reaching out to him to pick his brain on ideas and things like that. Finally, uh, an opportunity came up for him to hire an assistant, and uh, he asked if I was interested, and and I, you know, told him yes for sure, I want to do it. So that was my introduction to the NHL. Um, you know, from between then and now, I uh, moved to the Vancouver Canucks in a, the same capacity. It was just with the uh, the goal of of some things that were didn't end up happening. Um, the goal was for Roger Takahashi, who who is currently the head training coach at 
and, and he was the person who hired me to potentially move up into a, a high performance director's role, and then I would move into the head strength coach role um, through through a change in management. Um, you know that opportunity never came about. So when the job in St. Louis was available, I put my name in, and um, luckily I was able to get, get this job, and now I'm a, a head strength coach. So you mentioned that you're an athlete. Uh, previously, has the has the fact that you haven't played hockey held you back? I'm guessing it hasn't because you've had you've been at three clubs in the NHL. But um, yeah, has that held you back? And the guys that piss at you that you haven't played hockey? No, I think the I think the only time they they take the piss out of me is when I try to skate with them. But uh, in general, I think, you know, having that um, having that experience of being an athlete's given me the opportunity to to empathize with them on on several levels. I think understanding. You know, uh, responsibilities outside of the rank with family, uh, the, the media responsibilities that they have to, um, you know, accept, and, and all of the other things that come in, come along with being a professional athlete. I think that's given me the ability to really uh, understand what they're going through, and and I think the athletes appreciate that. But you know, at the end of the day, I do think that they like to, to try to watch me skate and pass the puck because that's pure uh, entertainment. <laughs> So let's let's dive into the the hockey chat and what you do at um, at the Blues. So in terms of, and this is something that, as you can imagine and probably know, it it, com- it comes up all the time in terms of the tech and the the um, the monitoring that people do, especially well, both sides of the pond from the US, from the uh, from the UK to Oz to to the US. But it'd be really interesting to know and to go through um, pretty one by one, really, the, the bits of tech that you have and how you actually utilize them to make decisions um, either on or off the ice. So it, it'd be great to kind of to list them and then, uh, and then we'll jump off from there. Um, which, which bits of tech you have and you utilize regularly? Sure. Yeah, so the, the technology that we're utilizing is, uh, I guess, it, it's complex, but uh, relatively speaking, it's, it's fairly simple. And so our first piece of tech that we use is a first beat. We use that for our physiological loading, uh, our, our athlete monitoring um, of the on-ice component of what we do. That's been a, a very valuable tool for us uh, because it allows us to, to not only gain insight into how the load that the players have to endure on the ice is affecting them phys- physiologically, but gives us insight into how the things that we can do off the ice can manage keeping them fresh. Um, it, the other piece of technology that we use uh, extremely well um, is force plate technology. I think uh, I say we use that well because I think that we've gotten a lot of buy-in from our athletes and it's proven to be a very valuable tool for us, especially with having conversations um, uh, over why we are doing what we're doing with the athletes because I think that's where we're, we're getting more buy-in um, and more trust from our athletes. So the, the, the first beat and um, force plate technology, I think, has been a, a, a big component to um, how, how we're operating currently. So let's, let's dive into the, the first beat side of things first. What are you, what are you getting out of that system? Um, what kind of metrics are we getting? Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think arguably there's, there's more ways to collect data than ever before, but I think in my opinion – what we do with the data is truly really what matters. And so, um, you know, with the first beat, we've broken it down uh, into uh, four parts. So um, we've created what we call a metabolic signature. So the metabolic signature has um, training effect, 
And that's based on a zero to five scale that, me that measures the session impact. So for example, a zero might be um, no effect or a, a recovery effect and a five could be overreaching. So we look at training effect and that's purely to understand how the session has impacted our athletes. Um, the second piece that we look at is training effect distribution. And that's really uh, how much of the training adaptations were towards the aerobic versus anaerobic performance side. Um, for us, that gives us insight uh, from, from the training session on what capabilities are actually being trained and, and how much. I, and I think that's a key indicator for us because it allows us to ensure that we're able to give insights to the coaches on, on what the training was actually accomplishing. Um, the third piece is TRIMP, which is just a way to quantify the, the total training load. Um, and then working with some other strength coaches in the NHL, we've come up with uh, a widely agreed upon uh, way to determine um, the difficulty uh, of the session, and, and that's TRIMP per minute. So um, it's, been, it's been discussed, and uh, several of us that use First Beat have, uh, have agreed that one TRIMP point per minute equals a, a fairly easy session. One and a half trim points per minute or, or, or close to that equals a, a moderate session. And two or more trim points per minute, it tends to be uh, pretty hard. So that's those are the four parts of our um, system that we utilize to kind of uh, develop what we call a metabolic signature. And it, it, these values allow us to spend more time developing um, individual metabolic qualities rather than just having everybody ride the bike or everybody doing the same thing. So that, that for us has been a really valuable tool. So let's let's have a little chat about the training effect. So what what um what is that made up of? How is that calculated? Because that's obviously an arbitrary one to five. But what actually goes into that? So the training effect is a it's an algorithm. So it, the the system that First Beat uses takes a few different variables. It looks at epoch, um, peak heart rates during the drill, um, peak heart rate for the session, and then heart rate recovery. And it it basically breaks that down into um, what they call impact or training effect. And so those are the, the components that uh, play a part in, in training effect. And I think for us, it's been valuable because it allows us to really see uh, over time or longitudinally what range we should be working in based off of our schedule. And for us, being able to give that insight to the coach is very valuable because we can see certain training effect elicits an outcome for us that, that may be favorable if we manage it and it could be catastrophic if we don't. And so I think that's been a very valuable tool for, uh, for not only giving uh, feedback to the coaches, but really um, helping guide that decision-making process. And then in terms of training effect distribution, talk us through, I'm guessing that you, the guys on the ice uh, in terms of match play, do you have, do you have one game a week? Is it two games a week? Is it six games a week? What's the schedule look like? Unfortunately for us, we could we could go from anywhere from one game uh, in a week to up to uh, four to five games in seven days. So um, several of those games end up being back to back. Some of them are home and away, and, and so uh, for us, our schedule is 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 fairly dense with travel, uh, practice, and obviously games. So we really want to make sure that the loads that are being trained are actually going to help make our athletes. Um, play at a high level and, and manage that the potential for fatigue and soreness. So let, let's talk about how tr the training effect distribution and what your aims are with that. 
with that that go alongside that heavy schedule do you have certain distribution when the uh match plays in a kind of heavy um a heavy week or heavy two weeks and do you have does that how does that change if you have less games yep so our training our training effect distribution so that that differential between aerobic and anaerobic performance is definitely something that we try to not only uh, use as far as the, the total group work, but individually, it's it's very important to us. So when we're looking at what our schedule is, um, we want to make sure that the session uh, that the coach is planning has an effect that's going to allow them to um, create some output that's going to be similar to what they're going to have to create during a game. When we work with the athletes individually, we look at uh, a couple of different metrics within that um, that signature. And we try to design the work to improve where they're weak. So we look at um, where the athlete's weaknesses are on ice and taking their heart rate um, from the drills, taking their heart rate recovery from the drills, and trying to isolate specifically where we can make impact off of the ice. So using that training effect is a very valuable component of that because we can, det- we can really decide whether we're going to try to improve aerobic base uh, with our athletes if they need more of that uh, recovery between shifts or if they need to actually create more anaerobic power or anaerobic capacity during their shift. And so that's been a very helpful thing for us to plan and to program as the season goes on, um, specifically for those athletes that may not be in the lineup. Can, the, can your athletes um, wear first beat in games or not? No, unfortunately, the... The CBA, the, the collective bargaining agreement, that doesn't allow us to monitor um, in season during games. Uh, fortunately, our American Hockey League team uh, in San Antonio can measure in season. So we're able to get information from them that, uh, on game-related statistics. Uh, we can measure preseason games here. So we've been able to take the information uh, both from our preseason monitoring and from our American Hockey League team's in-season monitoring and really get a, a fairly close estimate of what they're able to do in games relative to what practices look like. So it's been a, um, it's not perfect, but it's been a, a good way for us to estimate the loads during games and, and provide that information to the coaches and the GM. Cool. So moving on to the force play side of things, and this is something that you sounded excited about because of the uh, the buy-in that you've got from the players. Uh, how would you how do you describe the, the process of getting that buy-in to start with? How have you? Why do you think it's been so successful? Well, I think the I think it's been successful because the athletes are actually getting to see what they're able to do and why they're able to do it, and I think that really provides some transparency to them as to why we ask them to um, participate with in certain exercises and how those exercises are actually going to end up uh, impacting their results. So I think that's been a, the, the, the most valuable component. Um, it also is a, drives a little bit of internal competition with their teammates because when one athlete jumps, they want to know how high he jumped and they want to jump higher. And so for us, um, that that just quick, immediate objective result provides that drive for competition. So it's been a, a really good tool for us to create that that buy-in. And, and obviously, it takes time to build trust, but having that objective feedback 
really allows them to understand that when we're asking them to, to you know, do an exercise or participate in a certain type of program, it's purely to enhance their capabilities and, and their readiness for, for competition. Cool. So dragging it right back to my level and, and simplifying things, what, what are you collecting when the guys are on the force plates? What, what, what data are you collecting? Yeah, so our so we we look at uh, five different force plate assessments. Those are it's basically a five a five test battery. So um, our first assessment we look at is the free arm counter movement jump, and the the free arm counter movement jump drives all of our training prescriptions. Um, the ultimately the counter movement jump, I think it, it's a really good movement for evaluating athletes in several scenarios, and I think it's easy to measure, uh, but Athletes from pretty much any sport really can incorporate those mechanics either fully or partially um, during training and, and for us on the ice. I think it, it provides several descriptive indicators of, of uh, performance. Um, you know, for us, we want to understand how the athletes are, are getting to where they're getting to. Um, you know, are, are they quick? Um, where, where do they need to be quicker? Uh, is their movement quality shallow? Is it deep? Th- those are all things that we want to find and, and, and be able to answer. So I think the counter movement jumps provided that for us, and it really has been um, very helpful for driving our training prescriptions. Um, and, and what kind? Oh, sorry, mate. Go on. Yeah, no, and, and again, that's that's our, our number one uh, out of the num- out of the five uh, test battery, and I think it's been um, you know the most well-received for sure. And what kind of metrics are you, are you specifically looking at from the counter-movement jump and why and why them? Because there's obviously tons of metrics you can get out, tons of, a lot of data that you can get out, so you've got to dial in to figure out which one is, is or which n- number of um, uh, metrics you can, you can actually use and, and try to prescribe off. So what exactly are you using to, to, um, to, to guide training prescription? Yeah. So we look at about seven different performance variables and a couple of different left-right asymmetry variables. So our, our performance variables are made up of um, breaking rate of force development, breaking net impulse. Uh, we look at a, a value called stiffness and impulse ratio. Um, and then we look at uh, average relative propulsive force and relative, uh, sorry, propulsive net impulse. Those are going to give us the the um, concentric values, and then we look at our relative propulsive power. Those are our, our metrics that we use specifically for programming decisions. Um, we look at a braking impulse asymmetry index and a left-right landing impulse index for our um, for our asymmetries. I think those are very valuable for us, um, specifically as we get into the return to play component of what we look at. Um, I think looking at a f- you know, multiple variables give us a little bit more of a, an opportunity to um, get wider data. I think having a wider database provides a better ability for uh, decision making. And I think that ultimately is sometimes more important than having um, having depth to the data. I think having that ability to do, uh, focus on integrating and at, analyzing a broad mix of information is more helpful. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Eric. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we discuss return to play and how the technology that Eric mentioned in part one is integrated into the return to play process 
and where Eric fits as a member of staff and where he gets involved and where he manages other people's um, other people's role in that return to play process. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box are a specialist gym equipment provider based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So done some fantastic fit outs over the last couple of years um, in Australia, in Europe, in the UK. So if you are interested in a full gym fit out or anything that may add to what you've currently got, so bars, plates, racks, whatever it may be, make sure you check them out and it's uh, you can find them on their website, which is blkboxfitness.com. And if you head over to their Instagram, there's a lot of stuff on there, a lot of pictures on there from the uh, from the fit outs that they've done and the extra bits that they do. Um, and you can find them on Twitter and Instagram at blkboxfitness. So also sponsoring this episode today is Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So do, have you done, you've obviously dialed into them seven key metrics that you look at. Was there, is there anything that's fallen by the wayside because you found that it wasn't giving you what you wanted? Or has that been, you've built up from one to seven and that's where you're at rather than going from, a hundred to seven. Yeah, I think I've. I would probably say that it's built up from less. I, I um, you know, when I first was introduced to force plates nine or ten years ago, um, there were there were about five or six metrics that um, I was taught and you know worked with. Now I've 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 increased those um, to about nine metrics, including the asymmetries, and I think. Uh, Ultimately, my my philosophy t- is typically simpler is, is better, um, and I know it, it could be a very complex tool to use uh, force plates. But I think having less information, um, but the right information, is, is really where we can make our impact. So over time, I've I've looked at using less variables, but then I found that something went sideways, and I wasn't looking at the right things, and I and I couldn't answer the questions that needed to be answered. So. Um, over the last probably seven years, uh, um, you know, we've gotten to the point here where we're, we're pretty happy with the metrics that we're looking at, especially um, with how they, they affect our decision making. So on that, what are the questions that you want answering and why do you go, why have you gone to false plates to answer them questions? Well, ultimately, we want to impact our decision making at, at all levels. So I want to make sure that when we're going to have a conversation with our athlete, we're able to uh, explain to them why they're doing what they're doing and, and really find out what is important to them. Um, and I think that's ultimately where we, we can separate the difference between signal and noise. Um, for me, I think, you know, 
signal is going to be something completely different for another coach. And, and I think there's too many uncontrollables from setting to setting to think otherwise. So I used to find myself trying to spend, you know, 80% or 90% of my time on, on what not to use to help our athletes rather than focusing 100% of my effort on understanding what would be impactful to them. So I think really asking the question, what's important to the athlete and what's important to our sport was where we were driving ourselves to improve. And I think being able to sift through what was really scientific from things that maybe were interesting to me, but not producing uh, actionable results is, is really um, where we wanted to try to get to be able to help our athletes. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the presentation of that data, there's obviously a lot, even though you've whittled it down mm-hmm. and, and, and reduced that. How do you present that? What do people see and how do people see it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I think having access to machine learning helps this because it creates the opportunity for, for faster data. Um, I like to call that data in motion because it, it, it's important to understand um, you know, what's happening very quickly. And uh, having access to that faster data requires technology that can have the ability to analyze those raw scores for us really quickly so we can actually decide whether we're going to um, act on, the, on that and create a solution. And I think our software that we're currently using has uh, done a great job for us um, in terms of uh, graphically representing the data in a way for not only our athletes to understand it, but our coaches and our GM and all of the other parties involved that are involved in the decision-making process. So, so sorry, sorry to interrupt, yeah. Eric. What, um, what, what software are you using that allows you to do that? So we're using Hawken Dynamics currently. And... Yep. Um, they, they've been a, a really, really helpful partner for us in terms of um, you know, catering to what, what our needs are uh, as a group in terms of how we want our data displayed, how, how do we want to score our data, and really, ultimately, how do we want to track our data. And it's, it's provided us as coaches a deeper level of detail, and it offers us a chance to really make, rec- make recommendations on what we want to do. Um, but really have more important conversations um, with our athletes on, on why we're taking those actions. Sweet. Sorry I interrupted. Yeah, no worries. I don't, know, I don't know where you were, but please carry on if you can remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, as far as the, the way we um, share our findings, we, we use a traffic light system to share our findings with our coaching staff and our um, GM. Um, you know, for us, we wanted to make sure that we were able to provide a quick snapshot um, for them to um, not only have an, uh, an understanding of what our athletes are able to do and, and um, you know, what their capacities are currently, but where we're going with their capacities and, and where we're coming from. And so I think our main goal was to have a way to share the critical information in a simple way so that they were able to understand what our athletes were actually being um, asked to do and how that was going to affect them on the ice. Uh, what we've done with our athletes is we've, we've given them um, – We've given them the, the information in a, a graphical format. So I think for us, it was um, really valuable for them to understand um, the, the name of the, the metric. But ultimately, we just break, we've broken it down for them into what we call gears. And we, we use the, the term gears because, unfortunately, we're not dealing with several road scholars. And we wanted to make sure that they all had an idea of, you know, 
where they were moving. And so um, first gear, they understand that's, um, that's their takeoff gear. That's, that's their ability to create movement initially, how, how rapidly they can create forces and, and, and start their movements and, and, you know, all the way down to the braking. And so, you know, we wanted to provide the, the information to them in a way that they can um, gain some context. Um, the way we uh, score our data um, is by collecting um, their scores, scoring it against their prior round of jumps, their positional groups, uh, rounds of jumps, and finally the entire team. And so our scoring is based off of a plus four minus four standard deviation. And we take that score and give it a percentile ranking. And, and that's been helpful for us to uh, not only give them the graphical representation, but an actual objective score to that value. And so it's really um, given the athletes, uh, that's where I think we've, we, we've really given the athletes the ability to, uh, to buy in because we're extremely transparent with the information we're collecting and how we're scoring it. So how does that differ across the coaching staff? And like you, you mentioned that the GM, do they get that same information or does that differ for them guys as you move up the pyramid? No, it, it doesn't differ. We want everyone to be using the same language. I think, I think when everyone's using the same language and everyone's um, using the same terminology, I think you get, not only do you get more trust um, from uh, up and down the, the chain of, of command, but I think you, you get, um, you get a little bit more buy-in. Um, it, it holds me accountable as a coach when I say we're going to do this exercise and it's going to improve this quality, then it really, it better be doing its job. And so it, it holds me accountable, but having the same terminology, the same description um, and, and using the same language up and down the chain, I think gives everybody um, that, that trust that we're, we're trying to move in the, in the right direction together. Um, and it, I think it's a way to, to help build that culture, uh, that high performance culture that everyone wants to achieve. And so that's, that's been the, uh, the biggest takeaway for us on, on that end. Mm-hmm. Nice. So you've had a couple of um, stints in the, in the NHL and I don't want to obviously point fingers of what, what has been successful and what hasn't. We'll, we'll try to stick to where you are now, but what has, what program, what's, what's, what makes a program successful compared to, one that's not so successful from your, in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think winning teams typically have two really important things in common with each other. They usually have probably the, the, the number one thing is they usually have the most collected wealth of talent. And secondly, I think they have lots of luck. Um, I think, you know, science does play a part in the overall process. It absolutely does. Uh, for me, it's found when you can provide some transparency and direction on why we're training a specific way or or why we recover in a specific way. You know, for example, I think speed is highly valued. And if we can work with our skating coaches to help decipher what part of speed we actually need to prioritize in training, you know, is it, does this athlete need to be for, more forceful? Do they need more impulse? Do they need more breaks, more stability? We can use science to anchor that that neuromuscular solution to the technical skill that they're training on the ice. Uh, and I think that that equals a better outcome. So I think we can definitely impact the, 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 I guess the chances of winning uh, on that end. But I think just 
you know, we're, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that talent and luck is really kind of the biggest differentiator. So with, with that in mind, how, how's, how's that mindset, how's that mindset that you just mentioned influenced how you go about things? Has that made you move towards the coaching side and been more, not, not necessarily as a coach, but just spend more time on that side rather than keeping your, you know, strength and conditioning, sports science hat on and kind of living over to the right somewhere? Well, I think we try very hard at having some creativity with applying science. Uh, I think that's important so that our athletes have the best chance of being successful. I think in, in the role that I'm in, I right now I'm more interested in focusing on how the cake is made rather than researching the egg. So I think, you know, for me, it ultimately comes down to, to successfully blending the art of coaching with science and applying that method um, so that we can contribute to improving the capacity of our athletes and, and really ultimately keeping that talent available for the coach so that they can actually uh, win us some games. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really focused necessarily on just the coaching side or, or just the science side. I, I've really made a, a strong effort to to try to blend those two and and really um, become a better applied practitioner and and use those best practices and, to try to impact our athletes as best as I can. Mm-hmm. So, are you, are you is is the aim like you mentioned about your um, the previous team that you were with and the the guy who was probably in your position now moving into a more senior kind of leadership role? Is that something that you would see for yourself in the future? Yeah, I think, you know, being, being in a position of leadership, I think, uh, you know, having the title, I don't think necessarily makes you a leader. I think um, having a, insights on how you can best guide the athletes and, and help the athletes is, is what makes you a leader. And I think having um, a high performance director is someone that you can um, utilize as a resource and and use for guidance and I think that's that, that would be a, a, a goal of mine obviously I'd like to um, be as impactful as I can on the decision making and and the outcome of our athletes but currently I think with our setting in St. Louis um, I, I I assume those responsibilities without the title of being a high performance director and I think that's where um, you know where things are going and I think that's going to be ultimately in the next probably five to seven years in the NHL. Uh, every team ends up having one of those, and I think it's a it's a very valuable position to have. Cool. So let's move on to the um, there's a few other things that we'd we'd plan to chat about um, on the return to play side. Mm-hmm. So it'd be great just to kind of tell the story of where you sit in. Um, I mean, it might seem quite obvious on the on the from the outset, but where you sit in that. In, in that process, and then we'll use that as a bit of an anchor to um, to dive off and, and, and chat about some some issues, adductor issues, etc. Yeah, yeah. I think so. My contribution in the uh, the injury and the return to play process uh, begin immediately. Um, there's de- there, there's certainly different levels to my involvement um, and, and my contributions throughout the process. In the acute stages of of the injuries that we experience, I'm really more. Uh, I find myself more of a supportive um, cast member. Uh, I'm assist. I'm typically assisting our head athletic trainer with proper supplementation and, and nutritional adjustments 
for our athletes. Uh, depending on the severity of the injury, we try to engage them right away on sustaining uh, some base levels of strength and mobility, especially in the injured site. Um, that, that for us, we, we, we've deviated from the, the old adage of let's shut them down for a few days and, and see how this responds. And we've um, headed down the path of um, we'd rather have them active right away. Um, so that's, that's where I find myself um, typically in the acute stages. I think um, more importantly, I think my impact is really um, a, a psychological component um, with the athlete directly. It's, it's really, I, I want to make sure that we're affecting a good mental state with them um, and, and really helping them stay engaged with the group and, and staying positive because I think uh, being injured can be a, a, a pretty uh, dark time for some of these athletes, especially if it's a, a severe injury. So I, I really find that initially it's a, I find I'm in a supportive role um, for the, the medical side, but on the athlete side and more of a, uh, a, a friend slash um, psychological component to it. Cool. So diving into a brain issue that you see um, a lot of or have seen a lot of in the NHL, um, am I right in thinking that adductor issues are a bit of a burden to, to you guys? Yeah, I think I, I would say uh, adductor and shoulder injuries are probably our our biggest, um, most common injuries. Um, I think as the season goes on, we, we start to see, uh, defensive mechanisms, uh, start, you know, they start to show up. Um, we, we play an 82 game season and that's just 82 regular season games. So, uh, it's a, it's a pretty extensive load that our athletes experience as the season goes on. So, um, one of the things that we see are, are, um, restricted ranges of motion as particularly in the hip and and that's where we start to see uh, um, red flags occur uh, our athletes come in saying they start to feel tight um, and really understanding um, what tight means is where we have to um, decide to take action um, tightness for me usually has less to do with uh, you know the muscles or tendons and more to do with the neuromuscular system and I think uh, restricting those normal ranges of motion can be a, a big, big red flag. And I think for us, it's very important to understand that the, the hip and the um, mechanics of the, the joint, because in certain athletes, we're seeing um, impingements and labral tears, and they're going undiagnosed. And we're asking our athletes to, to go through training programs to in, improve power and outputs, but we're not understanding what's happening in the joint. So I think that's a, a big red flag when we hear, uh, we hear some of those, I feel tight and, or I, I'm a little bit sore here and, it, you know, I can't move my legs. So I think that's a – adductors are, are definitely an issue for us. Um, so I think it's, it's something that we have to um, dive into and we've, we've tried to really – understand that more by using our force plates so is there is there anything specifically that you do on the force plates which would help help with this situation well when we go back to our force plate assessments especially on the counter movement jump we look at how the athlete sequences their movement expression and we tend to see a lack of extension in their movement uh, and that and with those athletes that usually usually reflected with lower duration of force production. Um, 
Specifically, the propulsive impulse tends to be lower. So when we see a, a diminished propulsive impulse, the athlete doesn't really um, have the ability to complete extension, so they're forced to limit their stride. And I think this uh, limited stride length is one of the reasons for groin injury, and, and especially with the lateral requirement of skating. So as the athlete becomes more explosive, they need to be able to dissipate forces better. And I think that's where we start to uh, make some of our changes to our decision-making and using some of the contextual values to um, understand how that movement strategy has changed in their force expression. Nice. So in, so in terms of a, um, an adductor issue that is forcing the athlete not to be able to train, do you just want to take, I know that's very generic, but just take us through the, the process of getting that, that athlete back to a state that they are, um, they're able to get back on the ice and get back into, uh, into action. Yeah. So our, our return to play process is, um, we, we've broken our return to play process, uh, process up into a three phase approach. And, um, the phases are guided by objective landmarks. Uh, typically when we have an athlete that, um, ha- has an injury, the severity of the injury doesn't, um, doesn't decide who's involved. So we we always have the involvement of our athletic therapist, our physio and myself. So, um, regardless of the severity of the injury, we all uh, work together on creating this plan. So using objective landmarks provided by the therapist and the physio, and in, in some cases, the surgeons have input. Um, we use several force plate metrics to guide those clearances and progressions on. So combining the landmarks such as, um, being able to achieve a certain range of motion at the knee and the hip um, paired with certain uh, quantities and qualities of force production and force absorption from the force plate, we've been able to um, design these phases so that we can objectively return the athlete to at least or better um, levels of um, performance that, um, than they were uh, producing when they before they got hurt. So I think that's been a... Um, a very important thing for us that we've worked on. Um, one of the issues that we've had in the past was fighting that temporal goal of a four to six week long injury. And then the biology not being cleared and the athlete returning to play too early. So we've, we've come up with this plan to ensure that we're returning athletes um, to play uh, hopefully as healthy, if not better um, than they were before. Superb. Um, is there anything that you're coming up against now that is um, that is kind of new and unexpected in terms of in terms of injuries? Is there anything that you see? I know you mentioned throughout the as the season goes on, you you see in more adductor issues. Is there anything else that kind of follows that pattern as fatigue sets into the season that you see you actually see more of? Um, I think we start to see a little bit more um, as the season goes on with. Um, low back injuries, especially that lumbar and that sacral region. Um, I think what happens is as athletes um, go through the season, you know, they, they tend to maintain their explosive qualities fairly well. I think what happens um, is they start to lose some of those abilities to, um, to dissipate forces and they're not using their knees as well when they're skating and that fatigue impacts that movement quality. And so we start to see a lot more hinging with our athletes um, throughout their stride 
and throughout their movement qualities. And so when we see that, um, we, we tend to get more of the issues pop up in that lumbar area and that sacral region. And I think that really um, is where we want to make sure that, you know, what I think what, what makes our athletes special, uh, you know, being explosive and being forceful is, is important to keep. But at the end of the day, we need to make sure that their performance uh, on the ice is, is as efficient as it can be. So really helping them learn how to dissipate those forces better um, and really using, uh, using some of the movements that uh, allow them to uh, have to work under more time is going to be what's uh, helpful to them in, in terms of um, programming. So we, we try to really balance out their, their asymmetries within their movement uh, qualities and within their force and their um, breaking abilities. Sweet. Well, I'm gonna. I'm just conscious of time, and and you're you just had practice and, and whatnot. So I'm gonna. I do a little roundup, but really, really appreciate you coming on, Eric. But um, where can where can people get to know a little bit more about you? Are you on social media? Is there anywhere best that um, that I, we could direct people to um, to get to know more about you? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, that's probably where I spend most of my time for social media. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at Eric Renahan. Um, I, I can, I feel, I feel your pain. I'm, I'm guessing that you're going to get all sorts when you say your names, Renahan. Just spell that for us. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, silent G. So it's R E N A G H A N. Um, and then my email address is erenahan at stlblues.com. So I can be reached at either of those. Um, I, I love talking shop. So if anybody ever wants to reach out, um, especially if we, you know, you reach out and ask to grab a beer, I'm definitely in. Yes. And that's <laughs> your, that's your, um, drink of choice when meeting up for networking and not networking, but getting just getting to know people and talking shit about false plates and hockey. Oh yeah. I think that's uh, you know, it, anytime you can have a beer with somebody, it makes the conversation uh, flow a little bit better for several reasons, but I also think that um, you know talking shop and and getting to know people is is more fun over a beer. Nice. So if you're in St. Louis, give uh, hit Eric up on his email and uh, arrange a beer. Yeah, I'll be doing that if I'm over there. <laughs> All right, mate. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate your time, and um, and we'll keep in touch and, and and chat soon. Absolutely, it was my pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, mate. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 213 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Eric. Firstly, big thanks to Eric for coming on and being so honest and open in what they do at the Blues. And also big thanks to I Measure You, to Hawking Dynamics, to Black Box, and to Eccentric for sponsoring this episode today. As I've said all the time, uh, every single episode, the podcast could not run in its current form without the support of uh, some great sponsors. So thank you very much to them guys for their continued support. If you are enjoying the podcast, please press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And every Thursday morning UK time, you will hopefully get an excellent episode with a fantastic guest. So thank you for tuning in again, and I will chat to you next week.